0: If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast and everything you need is all in one place. And here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. Spotify with anchor creators can earn money in a variety of ways including ads and podcast subscriptions and best of all anchor is totally free download the anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started i stay here to defend the alamo and for those who will choose to stay i know that although they may be sacrificed to the vengeance of a gothic enemy the victory will cost the enemy so dear that it will be worse for him than defeat. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes these real life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the south and have created larger than life accounts of legend each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events interesting places famous people and everything in between from all around the south subscribe now on spotify apple podcast amazon music youtube or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the Uncommon History of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And Harold, before we get into the podcast, we got a few house cleaning or updates that we normally do. Um don't forget we have all of our links in one place now and it's at the top of our show notes it's our link tree account. And also we have reduced all of our prices in our store. So we're having a summer sale. So you can get a really cool uncommon history of the south t-shirt for $20. You can get a coffee mug, you can get the stainless steel drinkware, you can get the glass drinkware, a lot of nice gifts and it also helps support our show. Um, also if you listen to us on Apple, please leave us a five-star review. And a comment. This helps the ag- agri- helps uh, people find us. It puts us up uh, in their search engines. So, whatever, you, if you can just leave us a five star review and then put something in there about if you like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast, put it in there. and Let us know, and we'll we'll make it better. So, Harold, that is all I have.
1: Okay, we wanted to start a little early tonight. We're not going to do a this day in Kentucky history on this podcast because I wanted to devote a total time to our to our guest who. I have been so looking forward to this. Uh, and I also want to thank Muzzle Oder Magazine, Jason Gatliff, for uh, helping me uh, connect with Gary Foreman, who is going to be our guest. And uh, I want to thank them for, for helping making this possible. And uh, Gary Foreman is a historian, a film document, uh does film documentaries. He is a, uh owner of Native Sun Production. Uh, he's been in media since the 1970s. Uh, he has done work for the History Channel since 1994, and he started with a with a product there called the Revolutionary War. He's he's done s- has had several several awards. Uh, he has three uh, Western Writers Awards. He has 12 outstanding documentary awards. Uh, he is also uh, nominated for an Emmy for his uh, product on the War of 1812. Gary Foreman, welcome to Uncommon History of the welcome. South.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks gentlemen. Appreciate it. L- love being on your show. I really do.
1: Well, we just, we're just really thrilled and, and thankful that you you can give us the time and take the time to, to be with us. Uh, our mission is similar to yours. We, we love our country. We love our history. Uh, we promote our history and we try to, to, to make this interesting and entertaining for our listeners and mm-hmm. uh it it's it's always the real stories are sometimes always more fascinating than the movies or the fiction that we see about the these events um you have also been a member or you have been involved excuse me of this Alamo restoration project can you tell us a mm-hmm. little bit about that
2: yeah i you know it goes back a, a a little bit of a piece here if you're if your'- uh listeners have a little patience I'll run this by carefully but it started in 1982 when i was visiting san antonio and of course i knew a lot about the alamo and i was visiting some of my historian friends there in the spring of 1982 and i was in the plaza and i was photographing that familiar facade of the alamo church which we call the alamo and um out of the corner of my eye all of a sudden i realized um there was a taxi cab coming and um at that time that that street was open for traffic right through the, what was the original compound of the Alamo and he didn't stop. So I had to dive for the curb to save my life. <laughs> of course, the only time I was concerned about was my camera. And um, some people thought I was actually hit by the cab. I, and the cab stopped and, and looked at me and then took off. And I got up and I, I calmed myself down and all of a sudden, and and some people will understand what I'm about to say. I heard a voice, and the voice says, you had to do this. And I almost said, like, what, me? <laughs> do what? And six months later, I came back with a 20-page proposal to the state, the city, and the uh, the Daughters of the Republic of Texas on my recommendations for transforming the Alamo. And uh, my life has never been the same since. Wow. What an ambitious yeah. project.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. You've done documentaries, and I've had word, trouble with the word tonight, doc, documentary. I don't know why. I don't usually don't. But you've done mm-hmm. so many documentaries on first families of Texas, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, the Wellness Road, Mansker Station, the War of 1812, Trail, which is a subject I've done a lot of research on, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the Civil War, Custer, the Alamo, Texas history. Uh, Gary, you've done a lot of work.
2: Well, thank you. You know what? I've been very, very fortunate i I basically have almost done most of my bucket list um you know adventures in life and i got more to do but uh, i've been very fortunate i've been surrounded by phenomenal people gifted people geniuses that saw the you know the vision where we were headed and joined in so i'm very grateful for all that because they come from so many different uh Disciplines, you know, you when you do a film, you don't do this by yourself. Uh, it's it's an army that you create, and 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 I had a general, you know, I had to be the general of the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these people were easy to bring in together, and because they're so, you know, they 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 were team they were teammates. Mm-hmm. You know, they were not um, um, egocentric people who had to be treated certain ways and so forth. Uh, we just didn't allow that on our set. And we were so gifted. We had from music, you know, uh, music score to animation to everything you can imagine. We just had so many wonderful people joining us to tell the story. I've always told everyone at the beginning of the filming um, on the first day, I said, this is no longer Gary Foreman's project. As long as you're involved, I don't care if your background or whatever you're doing, you're putting your thumbprint on this product. And therefore you have ownership of this product. So conduct yourselves in that light. And they did. Right. So I'm very grateful for all of it. Well, that's,
1: that's great leadership. Uh, it really is. It, it makes it, it also helps people to feel like that they are a part of something, uh, bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that's important for all of us to experience that in our life, to be a part of things bigger than ourselves. You know, um, uh, shift in focus now um if you don't mind we'll mm-hmm. we'll go into the Alamo the history of the Alamo and sure um Gary what drew people to Texas in in the early times uh you know uh, Texas is a very diverse state you have mm-hmm. you know all kinds of geographical features in Texas you have to go from desert to to hills to to woods to grasslands mm-hmm. and prairies what drew people to Texas what was what was it that that people wanted to go there so much for
2: well it's always a combination That you know this is a very good question because we've been discussing this element about history and why people do what they do when they do it and you know i'm i'm going i may go a little deep here but i i bet i just bet anything your your listeners will get it and here's why because have you ever looked through a kaleidoscope
1: mhm
2: you know i mean you know you look through it and it's all these pretty fractals and so forth. And, w- and what happens when you twist it?
1: Constantly change it.
2: Exactly. And what happens when you keep changing and changing it and twist it and twisting it? What happens? Is it anything like it was? No. No. Well, that is exactly what we're talking about with history. Each day, each month, each year, whatever keeps changing. It'll never be the same as it was. And so what's happening here, and I'm, I'm going to get to answering your question here, but in the story of Texas, it evolved so quickly because the the planet at that time was evolving quickly. What I mean by that is that, and science now backs this up, the earth has magnetic fields all over the place. And they're finding out that history is cyclical because of the changes in vibration and energies of the planet and the universe. So, and that's already been proven, it's also mathematical. But with Texas, at that time, in the 1820s and 1830s, there was this feeling around the country, and not just here, but pretty much everywhere, this feeling of expansionism, of tearing down the old paradigms, the old belief systems of who we were, what we thought we were, from industry to everything. In fact, what was happening in Texas was an energy in the United States in the western part of the United States, where you had artists and and um, writers coming here to capture this massive feeling of expansionism, and they caught on to that spirit and they came here, you know, from Carl Bodmer to, you know, um, uh, George Catlin. Um, Washington Irving. I mean, on and on and on. There was all these people. They knew something was going on here. They could feel it. They couldn't maybe articulate it, but they knew something was big was happening. Mm-hmm. You could feel it. And and then part of that feeling in expansionism was a sense of individual responsibility, risk taking. I'm going to reach for the stars. That was what drove people to texas the opportunity was there because the mexican government allowed it to be there the open colonization by americans and by the way what a lot of people don't realize the new mexican government after they broke away from spain was basically copying the um, american declaration of independence and the american constitution so the constitution in 1824 of mexico was just like the United States Constitution. So Americans felt relatively comfortable coming here with that kind of constitutional rights and behaviors and laws and protection. There were some differences, however. Uh, Mexico said you have to be a Catholic and you couldn't bring in slaves. Now, there's, there's this big trendy deal across the entire country to rip apart our history about slavery. Let me just tell you what the truth is. Yes. They were slaveholders, we all know that. But they are minor in comparison to the rest of the people that were here, and including in Texas. So we're talking about less than 10% of those Texians that were existing on the colonies of the northern edge of Mexico. And but let me just tell you the real reason they wanted Americans to come here. Guess what that is. I'll tell you. Guess who was pretty much ruling the northern tier of Mexico at that time? The Comanches. They wanted to get rid so, of the Indians.
1: Appreciate yeah, well, yeah. Gary, let me. Answer, can I ask you a question, ready. right quick? We had a we had a family here from Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Uh, her name was Susan Shelby McGoffin. And, uh-huh. uh, oh, yeah. you know, that story, yes, okay. Yeah. Now there was a tremendous trade going on with Mexico at that time in the 1820s and thirties, you know, her brother-in-law, uh, was, um, arrested by the Mexican government. He was actually a spy for the U S government, yeah. but they were making so much money, uh, that the higher ups in Mexico got him out or, you know, arranged or made a deal or whatever. Uh, yeah. So Listen, you
2: go, yeah, it goes, so, is it yeah, was
1: financial reasons a lot of them wanted us down there too? Is that part
2: absolutely. of it? Absolutely. Listen, this is, okay, when I'm talking about expansionism, this includes economics. And Mexico could not function well enough in the northern tier, which was Texas at that time, Tejas, they called it. And in Tejas, the Comanches ruled the roost. And they had been doing that since the middle of the 18th century. So they could not conquer the, the, the Comanches. However, why not bring in some cannon fodder called Americanos to handle that mess? Mm-hmm. And they did. In fact, just after uh, Stephen F. Austin set up his colony, in, which is called San Felipe de Austin, right there on the Brazos River, um, Austin, to deal with the ongoing threats of the Comanche work parties, he started what they call ranging companies in 1823, became known as eventually the Texas Rangers.
1: Yes.
2: So, um, and it was a different type of ranging group because they had long rifles and pistols, but they, when they had to go into battle, they had to dismount to fight on, you know, on foot with our horses. But the main thing was, is that these Americanos came in here and they were the cannon fodder. They knew it. The Mexicans knew it. And they still thrived like crazy. In fact, within six, seven years, the Mexican government came out to visit these colonists and they were shocked at how industrious and how phenomenal their farms and settlements appeared and being functioning. And they're way ahead of their Mexican brothers down in the south. So they were threatened by that. So the man who, who was investigating how well the Texians were doing at that time put out a decree in the following year after he came out was that there would be no more settlement in texas by americanos they're shut trying to shut off the border shortly after that an, a, another fellow jumps into the picture by the name of antonio la de santa anna who was at the time a a federalist or a states rights kind of guy kind of and he as soon as he got in power he on um, switch and became a dictator and got rid of the constitution of 1824. so there lies the real problem. So um, anyway, within a short time, we have a revolt, not just in Texas, but throughout the multiple states throughout Mexico because of this junta, this this tearing down of the Constitution. So the question is, do you really have a republic when you get rid of your Constitution? And I say no. no. And so that's how everyone felt. In fact, I was I would tell you that in a, in the, the the pecking order of of countries that present themselves to the international market if you are run by a dictator you nearly you drop several notches down on the on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening to Mexico at the time in the 1830s. They because they became ruled by a dictator, they were no longer holding the same a high esteem that people hoped they would at that time. Here's the other thing that most people don't realize. This is all about money. This is all about investment. This is all about risk-taking. Mm-hmm. Because at this same time, guess who is the commander-in-chief of the Mexican army? A Navy. Who's that? Is that None up? other than David Porter, formerly of the United States Navy, who was on the USS Constitution and the USS Essex frigates. In the War of 1812, he was out of a job because we had no war. We had no need for big Navy anymore. So he became the commander in chief of the Navy. And the Mexican um, Navy had some of the lousiest ships. And I know if I was David Porter, he'd probably resign for the fact that Mexico just could not carry the deal, could not carry it. But anyway, he formed the the basis of the first uh, beginnings of the Republic of Mexico's Navy in the 1820s. So that dispels this whole r- racial thing and this whole white supremacist deal. The other part of it is that who is in charge of the Mexican army? Well, we got the dictator himself, Ana. But who's in second command? Is he a Mexican? No. It's an Italian, Vincent Filosola, who's in charge of all the cavalry. A Mexican? No. It's a Spaniard, Sesma, who's in charge, who's another high-ranking officer or general of the mexican mexican army is he a mexican no he's a spaniard and who is funding who is funding let me say who is funding the mexican military at this time
1: Guess. i have i have the america you know
2: i have no idea no the rothschilds the bank of england oh so what's in the hands of the mexican soldiers British brown vest muskets and Baker rifles and swords and pistols and everything you can imagine coming from England and artillery pieces.
1: So, yeah, we're still, I guess I can see where we would still be somewhere after the War of 1812 about that.
2: Well, that's right. And this was, these were surplus arms from the War of 1812. I'm sure a number of these items fought in the Battle of the Waterloo. Mm-hmm. But the point is the Mexican Mexican military is being financed by the bank of england wow yeah oh, so in fact you know we and we know that because a lot of the relics have been found on the battlefields throughout texas these are british british weapons mm-hmm. we know that so it's no secret it's no secret in fact after the texas revolution outside Veracruz in 1837 which was a, a bad year for the for the world because that was a panic year or a, a depression year 1830s, what's outside Veracruz? What is outside Veracruz? My goodness. You know what's outside Veracruz? Tell me. British warships demanding their their payback, their money that they loaned them hmm. in Boy. silver. Thank you very much. Well, Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Now, what I'm saying here's what I'm saying. The reason I set this precedent up is that it, it, when you look at it, and I'll, let me add a couple of other little tidbits to this picture, this international picture. Who starts the Texas Revolution? Well, guess what? Not there's two people responsible for that, and not either not there's not one of them that's a Mexican. Two Americans, William Barrett Travis, an uprising uh, kind of guy, he's an attorney who will make his, himself famous at the Alamo. And there's another fellow who's a a soldier of fortune for the Mexican army, and his name is Colonel Juan Bradburn from Kentucky.
1: Hmm.
2: Wow. Okay, and he's in charge of the of the Mexican garrison at Anahuac. So, and that's really where the that's really where the where the real military tensions exercise there. Well, I was
1: surprised. Uh, I had a a list of the names of the Kentuckians that were there, and I haven't went through the names of all the other states that were there, but being a native Kentuckian, that's just natural. I gravitate to that. And I was looking Mm -hmm. at their ages and where they came from, okay? Yeah. And a lot of them from from Lyon County, Kentucky, which is far western Kentucky. Uh, Their ages seem to run from in the mid-20s, early 20s. Uh, There was a couple there. One guy was 31, uh, I think, some of them were a little later. All walks of life seem like. um, They looked like they are from their lawyers. Uh, One was a lawyer. One went to Transylvania University in Lexington. Um, Uh And it seems to be um, that these men were young and ambitious. Um, Mm -hmm. Is is that the picture you paint of these folks that ended up in the Alamo?
2: absolutely kentucky i to tell you let me just tell you about the word kentucky in general you know you know they talk about the kentucky rifle a lot of these rifles were not made in kentucky uh, they were made in pennsylvania and virginia and so forth by mostly german gunsmiths those were the most you know
1: yeah, you um, should have heard uh gary you, that's that was our last podcast you go you go back and listen to that when i did a I'm a member of the Kentucky Rifle Association. So right, right. I just came from a meeting up at Mars, Pennsylvania. But you go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: No, 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 no. But yeah, you know the story, but your listeners may not even realize this. The word Kentucky was a generic word for the frontier. And if you had a Kentucky rifle, it didn't mean it was made in Kentucky. It just made, it was a rifle made for the frontier. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Kentuckian, it means you're a frontiersman. I don't care where you're from. They just called you a Kentuckian. In fact... David Crockett was called a Kentuckian by an English writer uh, in Washington, and then they finally realized who he was and realized he's from Tennessee. But by the time they wrote it, it, was too late. He was called a Kentuckian. But my whole point is, the hunters of Kentucky is a generic term for the frontiersmen of the American colonies or the American states.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, anyway, so Kentucky becomes a popular word for the expansionism of the United States, because, um, in fact, I'll tell you, David Crockett, even though he was, um, he was living in uh, Tennessee, his, his new place that he settled in, he called his Kentucky. So that tells you a little bit about how people were using the word Kentucky in everyday language back then.
1: Yes. And then there was the famous James Bowie. And mm-hmm. he was, what, about 40 years old at the time, the Alamo. Uh, he had been in uh, a colorful life, ambitious guy, yep. got got into a little little fracas there on the sandbar uh, outside of Natchez. Yep. And uh, the right people got that story in the east and made a fascinating story to them, and they publicized it all up and down the east in all the newspapers, and all of a sudden everybody wanted a knife like buoys. And well, that, yeah. They, that they started to— want- that started yeah. a phenomenon that is hard to understand even to this day, but uh, it's uh, yeah. it's a part of the fabric of the Alamo.
2: Well, you know, um, you brought up a good point here, is that I think what people were looking for in this year of this era of expansionism is these, these characters who are larger than life, whether you made them up or not. But the point is people were hungry for the idea of expanding yourself, stretching yourself, you know, taking risks and even dying for what you believed in. And that was a big deal for the, uh, the outside audiences, whether you were from the United States or from from Europe. In fact, as you know, um, Bowie was, was born in what, in a place near Franklin, Kentucky. I'm just hearing, I'm, you're talking to me in Gallatin, Tennessee. I'm not, I'm within an hour from Franklin and, you know, Bowie was just on the other side of the Tennessee border. But, the where I'm going with this is that there was a hunger after the war of 1812 to feel this, this, this energy of expansionism, you know, the steamboats were coming out. The trains were just being invented around 1830, you know, on the East coast. And even, even Crockett as a congressman wrote on a train, you know, very primitive train, but it, there's some funny stories about that. But steamboats were, were popular. I mean, the energy of changing of technology on every level, the fashions were changing. We were getting rid of the colonial field that kept us closed down for a long time until the war of 1812. And then we realized we were gonna be our own nation. What excited the world was that once they knew, once Europe knew that we were here to stay, they they were mesmerized. They were mesmerized by the kind of characters and the energy that was exploding here on the American continent. And they wanted to capture it. They wanted to see it. They wanted to experience it. A lot of people came here because they could not believe it. They could not believe it. So what was going on in Texas, basically, it was a collision course of cultures. You know, you have so many people. You've got the local Tejanos, which are Texas Mexicans and then, you know, who were born there in Texas. And then you have uh, those, who you know, from Spanish descent. You have Native Americans on the prairie, and those from the woodlands. You've got the Cherokees relocating into the northeast part of Texas. You've got people from the east and the south. you got people from Europe coming in. You've got soldiers of fortune on both sides. It is a collision course of cultures. It's not the tiny john wayne shootout between texas texans and mexicans it's not that it's bigger see that's that's the
1: thing always everything i've ever studied or or researched in history um from you know civil war uh, i've studied a lot of uh, frank and jesse james uh the Mm -hmm. corn uh boone kenton all these early pioneers there's always more so much more to these stories than, oh yeah, than, than we can imagine, and we only get, you know, we only get the high spots. Sometimes we really don't know the whole underlying story of, of some of these famous Americans. But with Alamo, is it is it a story of sacrifice? And and, and as much as anything, is oh, it, is, it, it, it is the story of is, sacrifice.
2: You, absolutely, you, you nailed it. It that is the theme sacrifices thing i happen to have over the i can't i can't believe it's been 39 years since i started the doggone project but you know in that time my wife and i and especially myself i i have interviewed more people in coming to alamo plaza than anybody has ever done on the subject of asking them why are you here and what do you want and they all come here because they know they, they intimately know this is a story of sacrifice. This is, yes, they know that, you know, there's, there's pop culture that, you know, supports the interest and the, the, you know, the emotional excitement. But deep down, what they really know, this is one of the few uh, postage stamps of landscapes on the planet where where you have people making a stand for something they believe in that's greater than themselves. In other words, they're willing to face the odds. You know, in the Alamo, it was at least 10 to 1. They're willing to face the odds and sacrifice their lives, and they often said this in their papers, for those millions yet to come. Mm -hmm. Okay, So today, today, we don't talk like that. We don't think like that. It's all about us right now. And we don't here, think about
1: now yeah
2: yeah and we don't think about our actions that are like dominoes that will tip over in the, in the next generations and even beyond that mm-hmm. you know what we do today is going to be felt tomorrow but people do not think like that they did back then and that's how they wrote Gary, and what? they wrote
1: go ahead I'm sorry did you mean to interrupt you
2: no 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 I'm just saying they wrote with with, with such eloquence and such wonderful commitment to the idea that we have no clue what that's like today.
1: What, uh, Of course, they had already, by getting there, by being there, they had already committed, and they had already put themselves out there, and they had already made the sacrifice of whatever it was, some, mm-hmm. some greater than others, but to be there to To get to that land, to to make it that that uh, land of their dreams, and so they they were invested in this in this new country, this new new enterprise. Gary, yeah. what are some of the what are the biggest myths? If you could, you know, every major story, every major uh, hist- historic character, people in throughout history, there's always myths and things that surround them that who knows where it comes from, but what's the major myths that you would like to to our listeners to, to dispel about the Alamo?
2: Well, first of all, let's let's go to David Crockett. You know, people say, well, he, we went down there fight for the Alamo and all that. No, he didn't go down there to fight the Alamo. He barely knew that there was a struggle. You got to understand the world operator operated at a three and a half mile an hour process back then. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we we're so overwhelmed by our by our technology and the speed of everything today. No, they operated at three and a half miles per hour. Or if you're on a horse, it's going to be a little faster. But, you know, um, for instance, if you took, if you wrote a letter back then and you wanted to send it to Europe, um, it would take a half a year before you get the answer back to your letter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All Hard, right. So does that give you an idea? Yeah barely functional yeah yeah i know so um most people will not have the patience or um, the energy for that anymore but the point of what i'm saying here is that when crockett went to texas he was looking for a place to, to establish for his family he was very clear he was not leaving or deserting his family he was scouting out so he could come back and bring his family with other friends and start basically a new community, probably along the Red River in North Texas. And it's well-documented. I mean, it's, it was no secret. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew where he's going to go. He already knew there were friends there waiting for him to show up. Mm-hmm. So that was his focus. Uh, I need a new place. I need to get started. I need to restart my life. I'm leaving Tennessee, and I want to start my life in Texas now. But when he got there, and on the way down, he got he, – but I didn't realize there's really a bigger opportunity for you if you join this revolution. And by the way, the first battles against the Mexicans we were out number three to one. We win every time and they had their tail back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, and if you join up with the army, you're gonna get all these thousands of acres. Yes. You know? Uh-huh. And so he thought, oh my God, I can't believe my timing. And so it was kind of a setup because they literally know that Santa Ana was bringing his best professional troops up to Texas to squash this deal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of sloppy operations going on that Crockett was encountering on, and he got himself stuck in this place called the Alamo. And um, But uh, the, the myth is that he went down to fight. He didn't go down to fight, but when he, once he was down there, once he got close, he realized there's a bigger opportunity. So he took the biggest gamble of his life, which cost him his life, mm-hmm. but it was, it was not uncommon to do that. Well, um, is, so most of these guys ahead.
1: started there to, to build a new life. Houston had a similar story, didn't he? Uh, he yes, was in he Alamo, but I mean, he, he, he had a similar story. He had a failed marriage and was to start over and, uh, is is what about stephen austin and
2: uh... well stephen austin he and his father operated um some lead mines and some other businesses in in, in missouri and um but his his father Moses austin had the opportunity to uh, meet up with the um the uh, fellow called the county Bastrop, and they and they decided to create a new colony of americanos. Uh, in the early 1820s, Moses Austin, when he went back home, he died, and Stephen F. Austin carried out his father's wishes to create a new a new colony, and he did. But um, things were going good for a while until until this new change, because the Mexicans felt threatened by the industrious nature of Americans. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, when, the, when I I've studied a little bit about. The, the spanish control of of mexico, and i don't want to yep. revert back too much, but um I think the Spanish had tried to learn from the English about how that uh America became very independent and they couldn't control it that many miles away and mm-hmm. so i I've always uh, read or or i can't remember we've talked about it in the 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 knife circles that I run in about how that they wouldn't allow a lot of a lot of manufacturing and technology develop in Mexico so they could control it and depend on mm. Spain for their goods and maybe, right. you know, so it was a way of suppressing. They were suppressed in the sense that they couldn't, wasn't free to uh, develop the technology and the industrial might that other mm. nations would, because they didn't allow the artisans to come over. They didn't want that. They didn't want them to develop too much because they would become too independent. Just exactly what yeah. America did. But right in the Alamo, the, the story that we have always, you know, the movies and all that we've seen and in in read, um, 13 days, um, uh, bombardment what, about every night. Mm-hmm. Um, the The men were, they knew probably from the time they saw those guys coming down around the Alamo, the mission, that they were probably going to die because there was mm-hmm. no way out. Is that a is that a fair assumption
2: well I would say it is uh, let me let me step back a little bit let me go back to the Spanish uh, point you made which is really remarkable um, you know I'll tell you what the turning point with Spain and Mexico and Texas was the Battle of Trafalgar where Lord Nelson uh, from the English defeated the the French and Spanish fleets at the Battle of Trafalgar after Trafalgar which is off the peninsula there between Portugal and Spain. After Travolta in 1805, the Spanish could hardly get anything to the new world again. And we're talking about cutting back their supplies, their their, their leadership, anything by 90%. 90% wow. cut back. Goodness. That's how strong the English Navy was owning the ocean. Their
1: economy had to have a huge effect. Exactly. On their economy. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And there was there were people who took advantage of that, including the American general who was a tra- the biggest trader in our history, way by, beyond Benedict Arnold, and that was General James Wilkinson.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, from Kentucky. And look at, Who's
2: from Kentucky? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Spanish conspiracy,
1: yeah. He, yeah, in.
2: and he was agent number 13. Yeah. And he was working with the Spanish. But here's the deal. He kept telling them, look, you're going to be invaded by the North Americanos. And he kept threatening about it. He says, you got to watch out. And he kept paying him for his, in, for his intelligence because he's getting paid by two countries, Spain and America. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge story. Wilkinson is a huge, huge story, and he's a Kentuckian. I mean, he's not originally from Kentucky, but he was a Kentuckian. And that story is so phenomenal. we we got to create a motion picture on that because it'll blow people's minds. But Wilkinson, after Trafalgar, he pushed the Spanish and said, the North Americanos are coming. And when Spain... He was, no, they were bleeding. And he was pushing them. And they, they pushed troops up from Mexico. And this little mission called uh, Mission San Antonio de Valero. And the, this, this flying company came up because of the of what Wilkinson was threatening, not knowing that it was going to be Wilkinson who was planning to invade them.
1: Mm.
2: They had wow. no idea. But here's the point. Here's the irony of this. These Mexican troops got the message from Wilkinson about the threat of an invasion from the north. And guess what they did? They fortified the El Camino Real, that, the Royal Roads of Texas. And they fortified a place, a mission called San Antonio de Valero with a flying company from Los Carlos, San Juan, Los Alamos. It was called Los Alamos, the Flying Company of Alamo. And the, the mission became known as the Alamo, and they they built the southern fortifications and barracks, main gate area of the Alamo that we know today or was used in the battle. And I'll tell you, it's it's so ironic, it's so ironic that Wilkinson forced them to actually do something to create the Alamo into a more fortified place. But here's my point with all of this, is that when the Texians took, took cover in the Alamo, They had the largest supply of artillery of any fort west of the Mississippi. That was the thing that would haunt them and Mexico throughout the Texas Revolution. Because it not only wiped out the Alamo because they felt they had to hold this place because of the artillery and its location, but Santa Ana felt they had to conquer this this castle in the wilderness. And that cost him time and cost him resources that eventually helped get him defeated at San Jacinto. Mm -hmm. But the point I'm making here is that this story is so big. Now, this battle was not big in itself as far as participants, because, you know, under 3,000 men competed or fought in this final battle. But it was big in its... In his, um, in his, in his output or its results, in in what really took place here, mm-hmm. and and that's what most people don't get. You know, the domino effect of what happened at the Alamo is not just in men that were lost. It was it was also in the uh, in the esprit de corps of the Mexican army. Mm-hmm. They lost their spirit after the Battle of the Alamo. They lost it because. It was a costly attack on the walls of the Alamo to succumb, you know, the the defenders. But more than that, there were, and this is where it gets a little bit controversial for some people, not for me, but there were um, approximately six defenders who outlasted, I'm going to use the word, outlasted the battle when the Mexicans blew the bugle for ceasefire because they were killing each other accidentally. Mm -hmm. Friendly fire. Because there was still somewhat low light levels because the sun was just coming up. It was smoky. It was somewhat dark in a lot of corners. And they were shooting at each other. So they blew the bugle for ceasefire. They found six men who had survived. One of them, and I believe it's, it's the uh, the accounts are accurate, was David Crockett. These men were convinced that the battle was over. They were out of ammunition. They are all bloodied up anyways. But the battle was over, and the general... Castrión, the Spanish gentleman, general, took command of the situation. He says, I promise you my protection. Well, unfortunately Santa Ana, when he entered the compound not long after that, Santa Ana overruled it and says, no, I told you there'd be no prisoners. And they went into a big fight and Santa Ana ordered the execution of these final six. Now here is where it gets interesting. According to numerous documents, Numerous accounts by the Mexicans. He ordered one of the elite troops to kill him. And then he started walking away. Well, guess what happened? Nobody obeyed the order because hmm. they knew it was murder. But the corps of officers that surrounded his escort of Santa Ana they saw an opportunity here that because they didn't participate in the battle, they just escorted Santa Anna. So they came in, pushed their way through the ring of soldiers and officers, drew their swords, and started hacking these guys to pieces quickly. Hmm. And every officer who walked watches and who was completely horrified by it said, "None of these men humiliated themselves. None of they all stared death in the eye." And some even fought back at the time they were being pierced through the swords. Goodness. That act, that act alone, took the guts out of the Mexican army, because Castrión from that point would never, ever, ever talk to Santa Ana. Well, you know there was there was more to dying in that manner than swinging your rifle for a movie. that would take down more of the Mexican army than you ever Mm realized because it, it completely showed the true colors of what this, this monster was about.
1: Okay. Gary, we've got a few minutes left. Um, what happened to the bodies of all the men in the Alamo?
2: Uh, they were all cremated. They, we, we know there are at least two cremation piles, funeral pyres, um, They were dragged away from the compound. They were pulled out of the compound because the Mexicans were going to occupy the compound. So you don't want to have rotting human bodies where you're going to be living. So they pulled them away about mm, a quarter of a mile away. Um, Actually, today, two blocks away from where the Alamo sits today on Commerce Street. And they burned at least two. We think there's another funeral pyre. Um, We think there was about 70 defendants that were squeezed out of the Alamo at the end and they made their last stand outside the walls and their bodies were collected and burned in a separate place. But that's what we think we know right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, what a story. What a sacrifice. Yeah. It's uh, it's, we could go on for hours. Uh, I wish we had hours, but our recording equipment will only go so long. Um, Gary, thank you for your wonderful uh, story. Uh, we hope when you do this again, um, let's we, do we it. Just, I feel like we haven't just scratched the surface really. Uh, oh, we
2: have, we got more, we got, we got some Kentuckians to talk about. And if we get back together again, I would like to well, do that. Let's,
1: uh, we'll do another part two of the Alamo. How about that?
2: Yeah, let's do it. You know, it's, it's, uh, and it's fun talking to you guys. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell your fellow Kentuckians, you know, you know, stand up for liberty, stand up for what the other Kentuckians that came before you were all about. And, um, we have to man up in this time. You know, the American male has taken a huge hit, I and mean, we have to stop being boys. We have to be men. Right. So
0: that's my message. Absolutely. Hey, Gary, where can people connect with you or follow you or find out more about what you do?
2: Well, you can, um, of course, my, my website is nativesun, S-U-N, nativesunproductions.com. And um, uh, that, and you can also find me on Facebook, Gary Foreman. So we there are a lot of ways you can get a hold of me. All right. So well- I look forward to... If sharing you'd like some to- things with your audience in the future. I appreciate it very much.
1: If you'd like to hang on after we uh, sign off here, we'll have a few things we'd like to tell you, okay?
0: You bet. All right. Thank you, Gary, for being part of it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History. To find out more about the podcast and keep up with what we're doing, follow Uncommon History of the South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app. This podcast is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.